You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. So today, we're going to be continuing the conversation that we've been having. Uh, This is a second follow-up to the recent super stream that Monique and I did with Elisa Childers and Natasha Crane uh, doing a deep dive on the orange curriculum. Now, last week, we talked about how to stop turning the Bible into moral tales. We looked at a couple of principles of sound Bible interpretation, and then we compared those novels with that week's lesson from the orange curriculum. Uh, Today, we're going to talk more about this. I'm going to give another example. And I do want to let you know that I'm not trying to just sandbag the the, the people at Orange. I'm I'm not going through like 100 videos and then just picking the one that I like the least. I'm just simply doing the one from the last Sunday. So it's it just is what it is. And you're going to hear me say some positive things today about yesterday's lesson. Uh, So we're going to watch it together in just a few minutes. I've entitled today's stream, The House is on Fire. And I wanted to talk a little bit for a minute uh, at the start about why I picked that title. Um, According to Barna, and if you want to know more about digging into the numbers, I encourage you to go to Arizona Christian University. They have a whole research center there. with George Barna, and you can get all of the the nitty-gritty details um, there uh, at the Barna Center. But I did want to show you um, this, uh, digging a little bit deeper into some of these numbers about where we, what our current reality is in terms of, of a biblical worldview. So, um, I shared recently that 6% of millennials have a biblical worldview. And I wanted to share for a moment a definition of what Barna is using as the definition of a biblical worldview. So I'm going to share my screen here for a minute. So this is the working definition that the Barna group uses uh, for a biblical worldview and what that means. And I want you to notice that this dates back to 2003. So they've been using this working definition for a while, but I want to, um, you know, what the definition is that they're using. So, For purposes of the research, a biblical worldview, and I'm going to blow this up so you can see it nice and big on your screen. For the purposes of the research, a biblical worldview is defined as believing that absolute moral truths exist, that such truth is defined by the Bible, and a firm belief in six specific religious views. Those views are that Jesus lived a sinless life. God is all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe, and he still rules it today. Salvation is a gift from God and cannot be earned. Satan is real. A Christian has a responsibility to share their faith in Christ with other people, and the Bible is accurate in all of its teachings. So when we're talking about the fact that only 6% of millennials have a biblical worldview, this is what we're talking about. 
This is the definition of a biblical worldview. I like this because it's it, it has some specifics to it. It has some teeth to it, but um, it's it's not so broad that it's just, well, you know, I believe in God. It has some specifics about the Bible, has some specifics about Jesus and who who God is. So when Barna says that only 6% of millennials have a biblical worldview, this is the definition of a biblical worldview. And that's what you and I would say is, is historic Christianity, all right? That's, that's what we're talking about. Well, the new statistic that just came out last week is that uh, 2% of parents with kids under the age of 13 have a biblical worldview. So now we're talking about the parents' generation and where they are at. And I'm going to share my screen again and show a little graphic from this most recent research. And again, this is from the Barna study that was just announced last week. So I want you to see these numbers here. Um, let's see here. Pre all this very first line, all preteen parents. So in other words, parents with children ages 12 and okay. 2% have a biblical worldview. Now, 65% of uh, Americans self-identify as a Christian, but only 4% have a biblical worldview, and that's in all, all age categories. Now, if you call yourself a born-again Christian, that's about 22% of the whole overall population and 8% of born-again Christians have a biblical worldview. If you're a Catholic, that makes up about 24%, and 1% of those have a biblical worldview. So anyways, what I want to jump down to is the age of the parents. If the parents are between the ages of 25 and 44, so in other words, they have children ages 12 and under, and the parents themselves are ages 25 to 44, um, it's 2%. Now, if the parents are 45 or older, it jumps up to 4%. So again, these are the Barna numbers from just last week that were announced of the current parenting generation. And um, Kristen very astutely says that in the definition of a biblical worldview, it doesn't even mention that Jesus is God or about the resurrection, which is an interesting observation. Um, so yeah, I, I just thought it was helpful to understand, you know, what Barna is putting in front of people when he says that they do or do not have a biblical worldview. So we've got, uh, things are pretty dire. So this is why I'm calling this episode, the house is on fire. We've got 2% of Gen Z have a biblical worldview. And Gen Z is like, kids in, in my, my kids age and up. So, you know, in their early twenties, uh, and that sort of thing, but 2% of parents with children under the age of 13 also have a biblical worldview. This is why I'm saying the house is on fire. Like we are in a desperate situation as Christians, because we have a lot of people like upwards of 67% of Americans running around saying that they're Christians, but only somewhere between six 
to 2%, depending on the age category of the population, actually understands or has some operational understanding of historic Christian worldview. And yet, <laughs> these are the people who are in parenting and they're often teaching our kids in Sunday school. They're often our kids' teachers at Christian schools. They're often in the generation of people who are youth pastors and kidmen pastors. So as we're thinking about this, we need to understand, hey, when we're hiring a new kidmen pastor, are we really asking any doctrinal questions? Are we going beyond just asking them for their personal testimony? Are we engaged in a conversation about where they are at doctrinally? I think that needs to be in the mix um, in our vetting process. So I think um, when we're thinking about hiring youth pastors, if you can try to um, you know, get on those committees, ask those questions, that's great because we want to not just assume simply because somebody was raised in the church that they actually have an operating uh, biblical worldview. Okay, we've got some more comments here. It doesn't even try to pin everyone into deeper theological terms like the Trinity or sacraments or covenants that might bog people down. Their worldview de definition is not mysterious. It's, it's, it's not. Um, so, you know, but I think it is helpful that it has some specifics. Believing in Satan, you know, that he's a literal, little, literal being. I think that that, um, you know, some people on the more progressive scale could, could have difficulty with that on um, the views of the Bible. So I think aspects of the definition are, are helpful. Um, okay. So those are some initial thoughts of why I'm doing this, why I've entitled this, the house is on fire. So somebody asked me a question at the Maven conference a couple of days ago. I thought it was a really good question. And I wanted to, to share this with you of why, how do, how do we get into a situation where we have these low numbers, like even our church workers potentially are in the single digits of, of having a biblical worldview. Well, here's some thoughts. We're going to put this in the category of opinions, speculations, not something I would die for, not something I'm trying to bind anyone's conscience to, just some ideas to try on. But if we think about where we've been in recent history in American Protestantism, we've, we're coming out of 25 to 30 years of the small group model versus the adult Sunday school model. So we've had an entire generation of people now that have been raised without adult education in most local church contexts. They've been in the small group model and the small group model is, is usually not very education oriented. It's more discussion focused prayer focused, focusing on uh, people's felt needs. And those things can all have their place. But if we've jettisoned um, the adult education model, I'm wondering if this is some of that fruit from that switch. Um, we're 25 to 30 years into the seeker-sensitive church model. We've now raised an entire generation in the megachurch seeker-sensitive model. And I'm wondering if these low numbers are a, a potential fruit of that. We're now 25 years into the rise in popularity of topical preaching, where we have 
in many cases switched from verse by verse teaching through books of the Bible. Now there's obvious exceptions. I know this, I'm aware of it, but we now have entire companies and marketing groups that where pastors can go purchase or license sermons. Um, I affectionately refer to these as sermon farms uh, where they can get these sermons and then bring them into their church. And most of these sermons, <clears throat> excuse me, are topical. There, there's topical. It's a, it's a topical series, four to six weeks, move on to the next topic. Um, these are not deep dives into the details of scripture. And the topical preaching tends to focus on meeting people's felt and perceived needs. So we're 25 years into a lot of things that have changed in our local churches in the last two and a half decades. What I'm noticing as a common thread through a, a lot of these things is that we have fundamentally changed the messaging of our faith. If you go through websites for churches in your area, you're going to see a lot of options in your area where God's going to help you build a better life. He's going to help you find meaning and purpose. He's going to help you be a champion. He's going to help you prosper. Um, and I think that we have so fundamentally changed our messaging and it comes through our topical preaching, our seeker sensitive model, uh, the small group model that we have now raised an entire generation on what I call a funhouse mirror version of our faith. Um, and I think that now we're living in an era where the people who were raised on that are now employed as writers, kidmen pastors, youth pastors. These are the ones who are now writing the small group curriculum and the children's curriculum. And these are people who have grown up in a different era. And I am becoming more and more concerned and more and more convinced that many of these people do not have an operational biblical worldview, but yet they are wielding incredible influence. And that kind of brings me to the orange curriculum because um, I think that when we look at the orange curriculum, it came about in 2006. In fact, I'm going to share my screen again and show you some statistics. So this is um, about the founder and CEO of Orange. But if you just scroll down here, what I thought was helpful is just to look at some basic statistics. Um, Orange began in 2006. And I'm going to blow this up so you can see it real clear. So Orange began in 2006. So, you know, we're about 15 years into the Orange curriculum. But this is the part that really struck me this week as I was researching. More than a million young people are influenced every week through churches all around the world that use the Orange strategy. More than a million young people. So this singular curriculum is arguably shaping the next generation. 
And this is why I think that it is so vital that we talk about it, that we look at in detail, you know, how are these children being discipled? What version of our faith are they receiving? And so this is why this is so important to me. This is why I'm spending a lot of time on this because I teach online theology classes and without a, without exception there are, when i get into a class over two-thirds of the class will say and i'm being conservative it's probably a bigger number but i'm going to be conservative the two-thirds of the class to three-fourths of the class they've never learned theology in any kind of detailed way before even though they've grown up in the church many of them are coming out of a prosperity gospel context some something happened. They watched a documentary. They started doing a dive on YouTube and they realized I have a distorted view of my faith. All this time I have been going to a church and I have a distorted view of my faith. Now what? And so they are trying to equip and train themselves. And so that's why they come engage in our content at the Center for Biblical Unity. They start taking online classes. They join book clubs because they're recognizing, wow, I kind of have a funhouse mirror version of my faith. And I need to get more clarity because I need to disciple my own children. But if orange, the orange curriculum is influencing over a million students a week, just take that in for a second. Like that is a big influence. And so I'm just trying to ask the question. Um, and, and I think honestly, this would make a great, um, dissertation topic for somebody who is who's going through a doctor of ministry program is looking at these numbers, you know, they're coming out from the Barna, Barna group and doing some, some study on like, what's the long-term impact of various Sunday school curriculums and, and, and serving people who have grown up in different career with different curriculums and seeing like what version of Christianity do they adopt as, as young adults? Is it an operational biblical worldview or is it some version of therapeutic moral deism to start measuring these outcomes of what kind of worldview is created by these various Sunday school curriculums? Um, okay. Let's see. Let's do a couple comments here and then we'll get into it. Biblical worldviews come from actual Bible study, which isn't happening in most megachurches. Yeah, I, I think it's it's pretty tough sledding out there, based on, especially based on what I've seen, what I've experienced in our own search for a church, but also in the hundreds of letters that we've received at the ministry of people looking for a church. One of the main criteria that I hear people say is I want in-depth Bible study. I can't find that church. It's interesting to me that that seems to be a common thing um, that people are looking for. And yet it's not commonly out there, especially in the, the larger megachurch type of culture. Okay, topical study may be misused, but don't dismiss the techniques. When you teach topics that have uh, to those having a background of knowing the overall message of the Bible, it can be very powerful. Yeah, the problem is, Ari, is what I'm finding out is most people sitting in our pews don't actually have an operational understanding of the Bible. And I think that this 
the the fruit of topical teaching it has created that um that's my opinion like i said it's my opinion you can take it or leave it that's totally okay okay all right okay so let's get into this week's orange curriculum um and what we said last time just as a big picture principle we said that meaning comes from the author of scripture so um, when we're looking at a bible story the question we want to ask is um is this what the author had in mind? What does this passage mean in its original context? The question we do not ask is what does this passage mean to me? So we said last week, and you can go catch up on the, the stream we did last week of all of those details. I'm not going to re-rehearse that here. But the theme for the month of March in 2022 is cooperation for Orange. And Orange curriculum, again, is a values calls itself a values-driven curriculum. And this means that they use the Bible to teach children um, key principles of moral living uh, to, to children. So right now we're going to watch uh, the lesson from yesterday, the video from yesterday. And this uh, last time we watched the video from grades five and six. Today we're going to watch the video from grades one to four. So it'll be a different storyteller today. And we're going to watch that right now. And I'm going to stop and start it uh, as we go to um, offer some commentary along the way. The Bible, it's 66 books of history, stories, letters, and poetry that fit together to form God's one big story. The epic adventure of how he created us and loves us so much that he made a way to rescue us. As we travel through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, we discover people who met God and found their lives changed forever. Now, for an amazing story, inspired by the book of Luke, chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. Imagine Okay, I'm just going to stop it there before we get into the story. What I loved about that opening, first of all, so colorful. Um, I loved the animation um, and the artistry in that. I also loved it that they mentioned a phrase that I mentioned on last week's stream is the idea of God's big story, that that's what the Bible is. It's God's big story. Um, I appreciated the fact that they used the word rescue. Um, yes, I agree. That is the, the ethos of scripture is, is to tell God's story of how he is rescuing us. What I thought was not as clear was what do we need to be rescued from? I was I would have loved it if it said something like God's plan to rescue humanity from our sin or something like that. But I, I, I could, I don't have to quibble with that. That's fine. Um, it just is like a little bit of a thing that puts me on alert. So I'm looking in the story for, you know, are they ever going to orient the child toward a conversation about our sin? So that's just kind of in the back of my mind. So all right, let's uh, continue with the storyteller. Living in Judea 2,000 years ago, if you got sick, there were very few doctors. If you couldn't see or hear or walk, there was no one you could turn to for help. Please help me. But when Jesus began to travel, 
and teach and heal, suddenly there was hope. A way to get better and start life all over again. Stories of Jesus reached a man in Capernaum who couldn't walk and his four friends. Let's call them Leo, Mike, Raph, and Donnie. Jesus is in town, right here in Capernaum, over at Joe's house. Ginormous crowd, dude. The man who couldn't walk tried hard not to get his hopes up. I can't even get there, much less fight my way through a crowd. You don't have to, because we got you. Ready? Dude, one, two, three, lift. Okay, I'm gonna stop it there for a second, and I wanna make a couple comments. Uh, first of all, is it just me, or do they sound like characters from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure from anyone who's my age? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but what I I want to back it up here a little bit and just um, have make sure this doesn't blow by us too quickly as to when he's doing the setup for the story, um, and he kind of explains the big picture of Jesus's ministry. I'm going to replay that right now. Thousand years ago. If you got sick, there were very few doctors. If you couldn't see or hear or walk, there was no one you could turn to for help. Please help me. But when Jesus began to travel and teach and heal, suddenly there was hope. A way to get better and start life all over again. Okay, so in that, the setup for the child, it kind of sounds like what Jesus does is he gives people a big reset button. Again, I'm not hearing anything about sin. It gives them hope. I don't know what this hope is about. It doesn't seem like on the surface the hope is connected to an eternal hope or the hope of eternal life. It's more focused on the hope of um, their physical situation in the, in the here and now. And that's that's not to say that their situation in the here and now doesn't matter. It has no no importance but it kind of seems like there's this this conflation or this emphasis on the here and now and i'm not hearing a clear discussion that orients the child in differentiating between the physical here and now and the problem of sin and the hope of jesus is for eternal life so there's some things there that i'm wondering in the child's mind what they're hearing and and how it's being set up Okay, so I'm going to skip ahead. So they're going to take their friend to the, the house. The four friends each grabbed the corner of the man's mat. Together, they carried him out of the house and down Dusty Road. Soon, they could hear the sounds of a large crowd. There's Joe's place. Oh, yeah. What's happening? People jammed in 20 deep around the door. We got religious leaders, teachers, poor people, rich people, standing room only. Actually, there's no standing room, dude. Only room is up. Sure enough, around the back of the house, the four friends discovered a narrow staircase up to the flat roof. Wait, how is this any better? And down, dudes. Hold it. We can't even hear Jesus. Oh, we can't hear him yet. That's about to change. Help me pry up this clay. It's time to raise the roof. 
Within minutes, the four friends pried up large sections of packed clay to reveal a rough thatch of sticks connecting the roof beams. <laughs> Gotta bust these out. And voila! As dust and beams of sunlight spilled into the room, the four friends could see the shocked crowd gaping up at them. The only one who didn't seem shocked was the man at the front, watching them with deep, kind eyes. Okay, I'm going to stop right there for a minute. So I want you to notice the storytelling. Like there's a lot of things that are, maybe we could call it artistic license that are being read into the story. My hope is that the lesson would encourage the teacher to actually read the story from the Bible. Because like saying that Jesus was looking, he did looked unsurprised. He had kind eyes that that's all kind of reading some things into the text that Luke or Matthew's account, which I, I read both yesterday in preparation for this. They, they don't have those details. So when we're engaging in that kind of storytelling, but we're never, um, directing the child to actually read the biblical text itself and and the focus is on all this embellishment a question that pops into my mind is i wonder if that begins to create something in the child that undermines their view of the authority of scripture because they're they're not being oriented to read much of the text itself unless their teacher you know does that extra step which you know, as with any curriculum, it depends on uh, often on how it's executed. So a teacher could step up and and have that addition. But it's like I I'm just the question that comes up for me with this level of embellishment um, is what does that create in the child? That's that's just a that's just a question. Jesus, hey, all y'all people down there, get ready because our friend is coming through. The four friends each grabbed the corner of the mat and began to lower their friend into the rough hole they had created. Hey, what's going on? Hey, wait, wait. You can't do this. Hold on. In spite of the confusion, the man who couldn't walk was finally lowered to the floor, right in front of Jesus. The nerve. Just look at all this damage. Jesus wasn't looking at the damage or the shot crowd. His eyes went from the man on the floor to the four faces peering through the hole in the roof. In their eyes, he'd read what they'd done and how certain they were that he could heal their friend. He saw their faith. Then, Jesus smiled at the man on the floor. Friend, your sins are forgiven. The religious leaders didn't dare speak their thoughts aloud, but inside their heads, they were nearly screaming. Who is this fellow to say such an evil thing? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus could tell exactly what was going on in their heads and hearts. Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk? He wouldn't dare. Well, at least everyone will see he's a fraud. Jesus had God's power to meet the greatest need of the man who couldn't walk by forgiving his sins. 
Now, I just want to pause there a minute because I super appreciate this. And again, I love the animation. I love the creativity of this. I don't particularly love the Ninja Turtle impersonations, but um, I, I, you know, there's so much color here. I, I think this is great. And I really appreciate the fact that they stated explicitly man's greatest need is, is forgiveness of sins. That is fantastic. I affirm that. I appreciate that. And so now I want to see like, okay, what are they going to do with this? How are they going to fit this into the word of the month, which is cooperation? So let's see how that plays out. But that wasn't something the religious leaders could see. So Jesus gave them something they could see. I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus looked down again at the man on the mat, right into his eyes. Get up, take your mat and go home. It seemed that everyone, from the four friends on the roof to the people jammed in the doorways and windows, was holding their breath. The man who couldn't walk sat up. Then he stumbled to his feet. His friends cheered. Oh, you got this! Deep breath. Baby steps! Bring it, dude! The man took a step, a hop, a leap. I, I can walk! I can walk! Praise God! The man grabbed his mat and danced out of the house to meet his friends for a group hug. The crowd was amazed and filled with wonder. Most unusual thing I've seen in all my years. Well, praise God. Praise God. Through the power of God and the help of a few friends, the man who once couldn't walk now ran home on his own two feet. Again, I want to give credit where credit is due. Like, I appreciate that they're emphasizing the power of God and saying that explicitly because these are some things that are actually in the text itself. So, you know, that's a couple of very praiseworthy things on this retelling. Okay, let's let's finish this out and see what they do here. Whenever Jesus was in town, people hurried to see him. The word was that Jesus could miraculously heal people. So the man who couldn't walk needed help to get to Jesus. And his friends went above and beyond to make that happen. They saw a need and they worked together to do something about it. And don't miss this, don't miss this. Jesus saw that the man had a different kind of need. It's the same need that all of us have. The man needed to be forgiven of his sins. He got the miraculous healing he was looking for, plus he was forgiven. You and I can have that same forgiveness because of what Jesus did on the cross. So there are needs all around us in our homes. Again, I appreciate the fact they're emphasizing sin. We have a need. I think that's good. Um, I think that there's a lot of good there. So I'm still in my mind wondering, okay, how are they gonna tie this back to cooperation? In our schools, in our communities, even the world. And you can do something about it, but you don't have to do it alone, right? We India bingo. You can work together with others. Maybe you can form a team to help clean up your park or help out in your neighborhood. Maybe you could put on a show to help raise money for people in need in your own community or in other countries. Sometimes needs seem too big to tackle alone. So why not work together? 
That's the one thing to remember today. Work together to help someone in need. Ask God to help you see the needs all around you. And together, we can make the world a better place. I'll see you next time. Okay, then that's where we landed. So, okay, we the story was decent. I appreciate the fact that they included some mention of sin. But then when we got to the, what you know, the point of what they want the child to have, the big takeaway was cooperating, helping to pick up trash and to make the community a better place. Um, I think that that's interesting because if we look at the story in scripture, um, the theme of cooperation isn't really a theme. As we said last week, the when we look at scripture, we want to think about um, the, the levels of meaning. We want to think about what does the, what is the primary thing that it's trying to teach me? What, what is it that, that scripture is presenting for me? And often it's these levels of interpretation. The top level is almost never emphasized in, in many evangelical circles. When I teach a class on this, it's called God's big story. Most of the students have never heard of these points. And this is the history of redemption, salvation history, what God has done to be the hero to rescue us from our sins. That middle level of the history of the Jews and history of Jesus and the early church, that sometimes gets emphasized, but really that's always kind of the agenda in mind is to get to the moral application or example. So today, in today's story, we had a little bit of a mention of, hey, we're sinners and that's our big need. That's great. That's kind of some top level type of thing. But really the takeaway that they want the child to walk away with is that of cooperation and, and using that moral example. And I would argue that that's not even in the text of the story itself. Um, that's not a theme of the text. It's not in the text. It's something that the authors of the curriculum are bringing to um, the conversation. So... All right, we've got some comments here. Yes, Chris, this you nailed it. Is at the end, the needs are merely physical. There's kind of this shift that that happens that I think could leave the child in a very confused place because the sin thing gets dropped rather than maybe this was an opportunity to address the child's sin needs and how to address those. That that could have been an appropriate application, but what we see here is that that sin aspect is just dropped and the focus becomes on the physical needs. Kevin says sin is just a footnote and the message of the lesson was helping needs to make the world a better place. I, I agree. And this is particularly um, emphasized, I think, in the take-home papers. So I'm going to share with you, there's uh, one of the, I think, brilliant strategies of orange is that there's a there's a parent development um, parent element and you can download their parent queue app and so um, I'm going to share with you the the take home reinforcement from this lesson and I wanted to see like well do they emphasize the sin theme or the cooperation theme and so I'm going to share that with you 
right now so that you can see. So this is the, the handout for parents, and I'm gonna blow it up a little bit here, um, to work at home with their child. So this is week three, so this is the lesson from yesterday. It connects to the lesson we just watched. Cooperation is working together to do more than you can do alone. That's the big idea that they want me as a parent to work on in discipling my child. So day one is reading 1 Peter 4.10. And what that verse is, it's a, it's, a, it's a very short verse about the fact that God gives us all gifts. And then they want the child to, or the family to kind of go around the table and mention to each other what they see in each other as a gift that God has given them. Well, when we look at the context of First Peter four ten, it's 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 really nothing like this. But they've just kind of taken this verse in isolation, and they want the child to interact with that. They're going to have the child read two verses on the second day from the actual Bible story, um, and then they want them to imagine some some things that could happen if they would cooperate with others. Um, you will always be able to do more and have a bigger impact when you choose to cooperate. On day three, they want them to read one Bible verse. And um, it's about putting others' needs ahead of our own or something to that effect. And um, they want us to think about working in a team or a group to work on something um, and to spend uh, time in prayer today and ask God to forgive you if you've ever treated people unfairly or in an unkind way. Um, so kind of the, uh, dreaded group project. <laughs> so thinking about, um, other people's needs first, and that's when cooperation can really take off. So they're kind of trying to help the, the child work through obstacles to cooperation. Finally, they're going to have them read one verse from first Corinthians three, nine and make a Lego house and, um, want them to reflect God made you with special gifts and abilities to help serve others. Um, God made others with abilities and gifts to serve others. You want to combine all these gifts. You can help even more people in need. So um, they, at the end, they want to talk, talk to an adult about a need in your community and brainstorm what you could do to rally people together to cooperate and meet that need. So that's the take home discipleship component for the week. And you can get that. You can see it for yourself on the Parent Q app. You just go to the Apple store, download it, and you can set up your kids' profiles in there. And you can read the take-home papers for yourself in all the detail. So yeah, does the parent handout identified as orange curriculum anywhere? It's 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 in the Parent Q app and then it's a PDF and then you can download it. You can send it to a friend or send it to yourself or that sort of a thing. Okay, so this is sort of an overview of last week's lesson. So again, this was grades one to four, which is different than grades five to six. I did watch the story from yesterday on grades five to six. It was the same story, just with shadow puppets and increased levels of silliness. This this story actually had some some redeeming components to it. So. Um, you know, and, and again, I want to praise those things. I'm not here to just say that, you know, hundred percent of what orange is doing is bad, wrong, or, or, um, dangerous. I'm just trying to help train people 
on thinking it through and helping you to ask some, some better questions as you are interacting with the content in your own home, with your kids, and talking to your children's pastors and, and that sort of a thing. Even though what we're seeing is, and I'm going to put this comment um, on the screen. Uh, Kristen says, this is a great way to make little secular humanists using the Bible as a support text. And I think that this was Natasha Crane's point in the Orange Superstream, um, that what we don't want to do is turn the Bible into merely being, you know, a, a rule book of do's and don'ts. And this is how to, how to be a good person. Um, you can, uh, that's, that's probably not going to, um, win the day, but it, it, it does seem like orange a lot of times, especially at the elementary level. And we'll talk in the future about what they're doing at the high school level. But there is an element that they are seem to be training children to have the main takeaway be this kind of moral principle of how to be a good person. And then that the parent cue, um, the discipleship that the parent's supposed to do with the child seems to reinforce that idea. I think that and we'll see um, what the the lesson is next week. I'm I'm gonna I'm doing some other research and I'm gonna highlight you know some things happening in the high school area. So we will continue this conversation in, in for the next couple of weeks. But again, I want to state why I'm doing this. My my point here is um, to use Orange as an example. I I could probably highlight other curriculums too. It's just this is the one that I'm doing a deep dive on because again, it is so influential. It is being used by over a million children a week, okay? So it is arguably uh, the biggest fish in the pond. So I'm looking at it. I'm wanting to help parents ask questions about it. I wanna help Kidman pastors maybe think about it. I know it's convenient, it's colorful, it's, it's so well put together and well thought out. And those are all things that I commend about it. But I also feel like I have to sound the alarm when I'm looking at the biblical literacy rates of our people who are now parents and the children, and I am trying to make the case that the house is on fire. We need to consider the long-term impact of teaching the Bible this way to children. How is this training our children to interact with scripture? Again, I would love to see some doctoral dissertations done on this question um, because the point of the Bible is not to help me live a better life. The point of the Bible, the main point of the Bible is not to help me be a better person. It is to teach me that I have a profound problem, that my sin is like an acid that spoils everything if I am not in Christ and I need a remedy to get reconciled to a holy God. That is the big point of scripture. The moral principles, what we historically have called in theology sanctification comes after we are rightly aligned with God. But my question is, is what is the long-term impact of training children to, to interpret and view scripture this way? Is it sending a distorted view of our faith? Is it teaching a child that 
to being a good person is the emphasis, is the main point, is the main takeaway of scripture. Because this concerns me because being a good person will, will not get us into heaven. That That is setting the child up with a funhouse mirror distorted view of our faith. Teaching a child to be a good person, though, is a very safe message in this day and age. It certainly won't cause you to get persecuted. But I'm not convinced yet that Orange is actually teaching a fully orbed um, operational biblical worldview to children. So if you'd like to learn more, you can go check out um, my class, um, How to Really Interpret the Bible or God's Big Story. Those are two classes that I've done on these topics. If you want more details, or I would recommend Stuart Book, um, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Yes, Kristen, very good comment here. The big takeaway should be about God and his character. His character then influences ours. Yeah, it's, you know, how do we have things in the right order here? And I saw elements of that. I saw glimmers of that in the storytelling, but um, I'm not sure, you know, that there was enough of it there, especially when we look at the the takeaway and the parent cue piece, uh, that that's really what's going to stick with the child. So anyways, um, I hope that you find these teachings helpful. Uh, We will continue these conversations for at least a couple more weeks. And um, if you have other data or you have things I haven't seen, it's very hard to get um, public data from Orange. I'm doing the best I can. But if, if you have data where they're like, man, they're really hitting the biblical worldview here. They're really training kids well in defending the faith and how to articulate the faith. Man, do what you can to get me connected. Like, like tell me where those resources are so that I can comment on them. If, if your kids got, you know, just some great papers in the parent queue that you've seen, send them my way. Um, I'm trying to always... I always try to comment publicly on things that are public and because that's what we have available. So if you have stuff that I'm not seeing, please send it to me. Okay. And with that, we are done for today. Take care. God bless. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.